Good evening. Welcome. My name is Krushid Ghani, and on behalf of the music team, I want to welcome you to the Music Collaborative Wide webinar. Normally, at this time of year, we would meet in person, but because of the pandemic, and like all CME meetings this year, we have moved to a virtual format. I hope this still allows us to continue learning, maintain the engagement and collaboration to the benefit of our patients. Music began in 2012, and as you can see from this figure, we've undertaken a lot in that time frame. We've uh, had programs on prostate cancer imaging, uh, prostate biopsy, active surveillance, radical prostatectomy patient reported outcomes, MRI, transperineal prostate biopsy, urethroscopy, shockwave lithotripsy, and now small renal mass. And we have achieved a lot. And all of this has had an impact on less patient suffering, a better use of healthcare resources, all to benefit our patients. And for this, I wanna take a moment to thank you all for your support and all that you do to make Michigan the best place in the world for urologic care. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsors, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, for supporting us and in particular for their faith in us by providing us the value-based reimbursement program, which provides extra payments to urologists based on our quality performance metrics. And for example, last year, we earned more than $1 million as a group because of this program. And because of the COVID pandemic, I wanna give you a little update about the VBR. COVID-19 has impacted music's performance on population-based uh, measures. And Blue Cross has, gen has generously agreed that all music urologists, because of this, who are currently earning the VPR based on last year's metrics will, will receive that in 2021, as long as practice level participation uh, targets are met. And I'd like to just remind you what next year's VBR will be. We're gonna have uh, measures on salvage radiation therapy, as you can see in this slide, as well as rates for post-uroscopic imaging for kidney stones. On top of this next year, we also have an additional VBR where we might be able to get 2% extra in payments if we meet two of three uh, performance criteria as noted here around active surveillance, ED visits after urethroscopy and chest imaging for renal mass. And what an extraordinary six months it has been. And despite the uncertainty and the disruption, the music team and all our members have been working hard and we have still made progress. And I'd like to just highlight a couple of things. First of all is we have a new patient educational video on recovery after radical prostatectomy that will be available on the website. We have done an opioid-free radical prostatectomy uh, pilot, which Arvind George will speak more about later. Under Casey Dow's leadership, ROX has developed a patient-reported outcomes program, which will be rolled out in a phased manner to different sites. And under Brian Lane and Craig Rogers' leadership, we've developed a kidney virtual tumor board where nephrectomy surgeons can discuss complicated cases in a collaborative manner to learn and improve the care for our patients. The other thing I'd like to highlight is there have been a couple of nice music papers in press, both in the Journal of Urology and in Urology. And I'd like to congratulate uh, Dr. Hiller, Dr. Ginsberg, and Dr. Single for their work on kidney stones, active surveillance, and watchful waiting. And these publications uh, are available and we'll be happy to distribute them to all our members.
And today we have an exciting lineup and we're fortunate to have two internationally recognized keynote speakers. Dr. Chad Brummett will be speaking to us about the role of acute care prescribing in the opioid epidemic. And we have Dr. Stuart Wolf that many of you will know fondly who will tell us his perspectives on urethral stenting. We'll have three topics discussed today. In prostate, we're gonna hear about opioid-free prostatectomy. In rocks, we will hear about stent emission criteria during urethroscopy. And the kidney group will speak to us about active surveillance for the small renal mass. Towards the end, I will speak a little bit about the growth of the collaborative, and then I'll pass on to my colleague, Dr. David Miller, who will speak and provide us closing remarks. And one of the hallmarks about the music meetings is the discussion and the questions and answers. And I know we can't meet in person, but we do have a chat feature. And so I encourage you to send in your questions and comments, and we'll be happy to answer them during the discussion that we've built in during this webinar. We can only do this with your engagement and involvement. So we're really looking forward to that. And we hope this will still be as successful as our in-person meeting. So on that note, we'd like to kick things off and I'm gonna pass it on to Dr. Arvin George, who will begin the prostate session. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ghani. It's really my pleasure to introduce Dr. Chad Brummett. He is a professor of anesthesiology at Michigan Medicine and he serves as the Director of Clinical Research and also um, the Director of the Division of Pain Research. He leads the Michigan Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, or MOPEN, and he is an internationally renowned expert in this space, and we in music have been privileged to be guided in our own implementation of opioid-free pathways with his, uh, with his expertise. So today, Dr. Brummett will be educating us on the role of acute care prescribing in the opioid epidemic. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. George. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I want to just send out kudos to the urologists across the state of Michigan for the incredible work you've done in improving prescribing after common urologic procedures. As Arvind said, I'm an anesthesiologist and a pain physician, and unfortunately, this stat of opioid overdose and opioid-related death is still true today. We still currently lose 130 Americans per day. And in this era of COVID, we actually think that this could be going up. So while there was a lot of sense that we were improving, really the data suggests that we may be getting worse again. And I think it's really critical as anesthesiologists and surgeons that we embrace and think about our role in the opioid epidemic and not just think of this as a downstream effect. Uh, our group started working on this problem in 2016, really thinking about the fact that most of the country was focused on all of the downstream effects of the opioid epidemic, what to do with a chronic opioid user, how to better manage people already using opioids before surgery, and how to get naloxone on the community, super important issues. But at that time, really nobody was talking about this. How do we better manage the person not using opioids coming in for surgery? Because honestly, that's gonna be a pretty easy thing to predict tomorrow. The only two things that really predict whether a person's gonna get an opioid and how much they'll get is the surgeon caring for them and the type of surgery they're having. And really there's nothing precision medicine about this and yet this offers this incredible opportunity to think about improving the health and well-being of that patient and communities. And our team, uh, our team published this study in, in 2018 showing that the relative contribution of surgery, dentistry, and emergency medicine is increasing. That bottom category there in yellow is largely 
primary care physicians. And what these data show is that over a seven year period predating the CDC guidelines, the relative contribution of surgery increased by about 17%, meaning that among people not getting an opioid or not taking opioids, who gave them that next prescription? Well, surgeons were more likely to be prescribing over that time period. Not only that, the, the amount of opioid prescribed increased greatly for surgical conditions. And really over the last couple of years, we see a decrease. So why do pres surgeons prescribe so much? Honestly, um, we, I, I joke with my friends in surgery, but the reality is this is true for pain physicians as well. We're worried about time, we're worried about refills, we're really worried about satisfaction. And we've even at one point linked satisfaction and payment. Well, without going into huge detail, given the time constraints of this talk, I can tell you that when we think about this from a data-driven approach, there is no association between the number of pills prescribed after surgery and people's satisfaction with their care, nor is there an association between the number of pills prescribed and people's likelihood of calling for a refill. Now, let me unpack that. It is true that people are sometimes dissatisfied. And I'm sure if you went online right now and looked me up, you would find a dissatisfied patient. But when we look at this at a population level, we look at this at a level of your hospital, there's no association. And so if you start prescribing based on a single bad event, you're really ignoring the data. In the same way, some people do refill, but simply prescribing 90 pills to avoid the refill may not only decrease the likelihood of refill, it might actually increase the likelihood of refill and bad outcomes. And while our group was really interested in these because we knew these factors were important for surgeons, what I was really interested in was this. This idea that some people coming in not using opioids before surgery become what I would call a new persistent opioid user or a new chronic user. What I mean by that is these are people not using opioids before surgery who six to 12 months later continue to fill despite being long past what would be deemed normal surgical recovery. And probably the article for which we've had the most press is that 6% number there at the top. And what this interestingly showed, and this did include TERPs, um, with, there was no, no difference between a major surgical condition, so open abdominal surgery, versus those patients that had minor surgery. The, the rates were pretty similar. And that was true as well for total knee arthroplasty, where when we looked preoperatively and compared it to six months later, whether their knee got better, or worse, or stayed the same was not in any way associated with that likelihood of becoming a new chronic user. In other words, this appears to be something about the patient. And while our prescribing matters, and the prescribing definitely is important, these are tend to be patient level factors. And these at least are the factors that we've seen so far across multiple data sets. Anxiety and mood disorders, classically we think of patients taking an opioid and feeling high, but the reality is many patients, when they take an opioid, especially if they have anxiety, will say it allays their anxiety and makes them feel normal. However, over time, it'll actually make their anxiety worse. We certainly see people use opioids for sleep, chronic pain conditions. That seems pretty obvious, but the reality is, is that many of our people coming in not using opioids also have other chronic pain conditions. We give them an opioid for surgical care, and then are we asking six months later or even a month later why they're taking that opioid. Is it now for their abdominal surgery or for their chronic low back pain? And in that same way, substance use disorders and tobacco use seem obvious, but we currently don't, we currently don't have high throughput, non-stigmatizing ways or, or at least methods and that have been implemented in health systems to screen for substance use disorder, despite the fact that we're going to give all of these patients controlled substances. 
Now, Michigan Open, many of you know, has made prescribing recommendations. There's no need to take a picture or a screenshot here. These are freely available on our website. These were actually updated in the last year. And we do this through an evidence-based practice. So we, we take data, we, we get data from actual patient reported outcomes of consumption. We then apply that data, we measure um, change, and then we try to update. And so we've, we're in a multiple iteration. Most of the data we've collected have been from the MSQC that many of you know. So this is general gynecologic and vascular surgery. And what you see here is that in the 2015-2016 era, sort of predating Michigan Open, the number of pills prescribed, if we think about it in the equivalence of five milligram pills of oxycodone there on the y-axis, we were prescribing about 40 to 50 pills for common surgery. Michigan Open first gave a presentation to MSQC in July of 2016 without data or without a specific ask for a given condition, and we saw a decline in prescribing. After that time, we, we then put out our first set of evidence-based guidelines, and sadly in October 2017, that was the first large-scale evidence-based guidelines for surgery that had ever been released. We've then iterated three times, and what you can see there all the way to the right is that we might be finally hitting that, that threshold where things are starting to level off, where we're really not seeing change, but now going from prescribing an average of 40 pills after surgery to something closer to the European colleagues people always point to, prescribing about 10 pills or less. And has this hurt people? Well, from that same data set, and these are data from about 40,000 people, 70 hospitals across our state. So this is not single center ivory tower data. These are data from around the state of Michigan. You see that in that epoch, after our prescribing recommendations came out, that solid black line shows that we saw a steady decrease in prescription, such that we got down to those 10 pills. We also saw a decline in consumption and people on average consumed less than they were prescribed and through this time, we see no change in self-reported pain or, or self-reported satisfaction with care. So these are incredibly positive data showing that we can lower prescribing without having to worry about affecting patient-reported outcomes. Now, are we different as a state? And these data are um, comparing, these are national private payer data uh, from Optum, and we show data from um, Indiana and Kentucky, both of which implemented prescribing limits almost a year before the state of Michigan. And what you can see is that organizations like the MSQC or like music are doing something that's just not seen in other states. So despite the fact that our prescribing recommendations were available to, any to anyone in the country, we have really done something at our state level that isn't seen in other states. And we also see more consistency. Now we've done a lot to reduce prescribing. We've done a lot of education all the way to the right, but then what Arvin's about to talk about that I think is incredibly important is this is this middle bucket. Are there surgeries for which people should not get opioids? Not because we're scared of addiction as everybody worries about, but is there other morbidity, nausea, vomiting, constipation, ileus? Are we actually hurting people by giving them opioids when they don't need opioids for the care? And the most common example of that would be dentistry. Well, we actually have data from the MSQC, and these are data largely from Lapcoli's hernia repairs and thyroidectomy. And what you see here is the left group there, no opioid prescription in about 120 patients. The right group, an opioid prescription in about 200 patients. This is not a randomized control trial, so these are matched controls. And what you see is that those not getting an opioid actually uh, had lower pain scores, not, a, not what I would consider clinically significant, but certainly not higher, with equal satisfaction, quality of life, and similar regret scores, um, and you see off, off to the right there, 
there were still um, those people who did get opioids consumed about seven pills. And so this really kind of data to suggest that for some cases, like these laparoscopic cases, we could potentially go without. Now, before I turn over, I will let you know, our, our group is busy working in many other spaces. We're doing a lot of community outreach. We're doing naloxone distribution in the emergency department, uh, a lot of work in dentistry and starting to move into some of these stickier spaces, like how to better manage opioid use disorder and transition of care. And I do think these offer opportunities eventually for urologists to think about when you identify a person with opioid use disorder or a person in trouble, how do we better transition and better manage those patients? Because we all wanna do better for our patients. And I'm really excited to uh, let you know, and I encourage you to go to our website. Uh, we have a new musical that is intended for high school students to start to think about the risk of opioids before that first exposure. And we're working with the Michigan Model for Health, the state high school uh, curriculum to actually roll this out as an enhancement to the state's curriculum. So we are trying to move across the full domain. I want to thank my um, colleagues, many of whom you, many of you know, um, Mike Inglesby, he runs the MSQC and is now more active in the value partnerships. And Jen Walji is a plastic surgeon, hand surgeon. She is definitely the most effective and hardest working member of our group. And this is a, a, a snapshot of a portion of, a portion of our team. It's a hardworking uh, team and I, I take, uh, I get too much credit. This is the group that does all the hard work. So I encourage you to go to michigan-open.org to learn more about our work. We have prescribing recommendations. We have free patient materials that will actually brand for you. We have a lot of information there so that if you have a question about acute care prescribing or acute pain, we encourage you to go to the Michigan Open website. And then we also are doing some work starting to understand the biology, including some genetics work. And there's a lot happening there on our Precision Health website. And with that, I'm gonna hand off to Dr. George to start to talk about opioid-free prostatectomy. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brahmit. I'm excited to share with the collaborative our ongoing work towards achieving completely opioid-free prostatectomy. The pain control optimization pathway was instituted in October of 2018 with the goal of reducing our reliance um, on, no, on narcotics for acute postoperative pain control. The discharge recommendation to date has been six tabs of five milligrams of uh, oxycodone pills with the goal of having less than 10% requiring refills due to persistent pain. Patients are enrolled in the patient reported outcomes or the PRO program, which has allowed us to closely track prescribing, utilization and pain management following prostatectomy. It has been supported by a modified 22, providing an uplift payment uh, for patients who are enrolled on this pathway. We have seen a reduction in how much we prescribe and a 50% reduction in refills consistent with the dose response relationship with respect to prescribing patterns. It has also been associated with a very modest increase in, in avoidance of all opioids at the time of discharge from 12% prior to implementation of MPOP to approximately 20% post-implementation. Despite its initial success in re reducing the amount of opioids prescribed overall, it has not really resulted in providers eliminating the use of opioids completely at the time of discharge in any meaningful way. While this is encouraging, we now have to ask ourselves if we can go even lower and achieve zero post-operative opioids by focusing on, a, on alternative pain management strategies. Our cumulative efforts to date have reduced the number of opioids in the community, given the delta between what's uh, prescribed and consumed, 
However, we still have significant room in decreasing our reliance on narcotic medications. Additionally, given the GI-related side effects of opioid medications and that ileus remains the number one modifiable event for readmission, we hope to reduce readmission secondary to GI-related causes. Also, given the dose-response relationship described pre previously, we have the opportunity to further reduce new persistent users by avoiding narcotic medications completely. Since February of 2020, we have piloted such, piloted such a pathway, similar to what has been done in other institutions, such as the University of Pittsburgh. Now, this pathway is centered around the management of expectations and alternative pain management strategies. Resources have been developed to assist providers in implementation, including recommendations and suggestions for non-narcotic pain control, uh, such as NSAIDs, um, anticholinergics, regional blocks, and other more conservative measures that have been consolidated into a provider-facing placket, similar to what we've done in the ROCS group for ureteroscopy. This has been developed in collaboration with the MOPEN team, receiving also input from our anesthesia colleagues. Patient-facing brochures reinforcing these alternative pain, alternative pain control methods are available as a pamphlet that can be shared with patients at the time of discharge in a comprehensive video on all aspects of post-operative care after prostatectomy uh, includes this information. Patients are discharged without opioids and a patient questionnaire is obtained at one month following the surgery. And we do understand that not all patients will be appropriate for this pathway and it's really based on clinical judgment and the physician's discretion. Our evaluation of the pilot opioid-free pathway has, has so far included 58 patients, and patients in both groups at baseline, similar, at baseline reported similar pain scores. What we have seen is a marked increase in patients being discharged with, without opioids, as would be expected, from 8% uh, prior to MPOP to 50% uh, since starting the pilot. This still represents a wash-in period um, due to uh, the ability to be able to standardize discharge instructions across multiple clinical sites and multiple providers. We estimate that we can really achieve closer to 90%, uh, upwards of 90% as we continue to move forward. In follow-up, patients completing the pro-survey at one month did not actually report any higher levels of pain. Essentially, 90% of patients in both groups reported an average pain score of less than two. Now, as we move forward into the next phase, the 22 modifier for radical prostatectomy uh, in the opioid limited pathway will expire at the end of the year, as we've now completed that two-year period. During this time, we'll continue to evaluate the opioid-free pathway at Michigan Medicine, assessing both its impact on pain scores and readmissions after surgery. But fortunately for our next year, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has agreed to support a 22 modifier for patients who are appropriately selected candidates for an opioid-free pathway at the time of discharge. Essentially, if a patient is not discharged home on any opioids, then surgeons will be able to apply the 22 modifier and continue to receive that uplift payment for a, a period of one additional year during ongoing evaluation. The number of patients um, not eligible for this would really be less than 10%. Now we're encouraged at the huge strides that we've made and we look forward to working with our music partners to lead the nation in the transition to an opioid-free prostatectomy. And before opening the forum to feedback and questions, I'd like to invite back Dr. Brummett and Dr. Monty to join me. Thank you.
great. Um, so I'm glad to have uh, Dr. Brahmit and Dr. Monty. And also, we were able to rope in an additional um, uh, provider. Uh, her name is Mary Nolan. She is a physician assistant on the inpatient side at Michigan Medicine. She's one of our lead physician assistants, especially in terms of implementation of uh, enhanced recovery pathways. And she manages a large volume of our post-prostatectomy patients. She has really been uh, a major driving force in terms of uh, making sure that this uh, effort is standardized across uh, across our institution. And uh, and I, I wanted to make sure that she was here so she could share her experience uh, to date. Um, and so what I do want to also encourage is, is that we uh, submit questions via the chat function, um, not just for this session, but for future sessions as well. Um, we will receive them. And when we come to the discussion portion, we will uh, ensure to read them out and address those questions as time allows. Uh, so we do have uh, our first question from, uh, from, our, uh, from, our, uh, from our participants, and that's, uh, are we able to get the placards for our, uh, for our offices and specifically for music practices? Yes, we can uh, certainly um, have those placards um, made, printed, and shipped to your office, or alternatively, you can also uh, go to um, be distributed to the hospitals where you're doing these operations. Um, so thank you for that question. Now, one of the one of the big challenges um, as we go forward. Certainly, we want to implement this at, at a statewide level eventually, but uh, it, it's starting small and within a single institution. We've made a tremendous amount of progress with an opioid limited pathway, and as we transition to an opioid free pathway, um, Mary, I'd really like your input as to um, when you're speaking to patients. What are the what are the the, the key education points um, and expectations that you set? Um, prior to discharging them without opioids? Because I know that post-prostatectomy, um, patients have a huge number of concerns, like catheter, a drain, incision, shower, diet, so many different things that they have to focus on. Um, how do you message this to patients? I think one of the most important things is helping them understand where their pain is coming from. The most common things that I've noticed um, in the past dealing with these patients is a lot of their pain is either one from abdominal, they're experiencing a little bit of abdominal bloating. Um, and with that, working with their diet and explaining them what to eat and what not to eat, they're sitting there and have a bunch of sodas on their stand, kind of explain how that's not, that's going to contribute to their um, the bloating to stop with stay away from anything carbonated and watch your diet. The other thing is wearing an abdominal binder that has helped significantly. The other thing is a lot of people have a lot of pain getting in and out of bed. So they feel they need the pain medication to help them get them out of bed. And that's where the binder really comes in. Um, there's been a lot of times where I've had patients that won't move. I'll put a binder on them, come back an hour later, they're up and walking around with a smile on their face. So I think a lot of the education is where their pain is coming from and what the most appropriate treatment is for their pain. And getting around opioids is really helpful when you explain how they can handle their pain in other ways. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. And so, um, you know, I try my best, uh, at least in my own personal practice, to, to set that expectation really early on uh, at the preoperative discussion um, so that they don't feel that, so that they know that the expectation is, is that, that we're going to manage, manage that pain with non-narcotic strategies. Um, now, even with that, uh, and maybe even without that, do you get pushback from patients? Do patients say, um, you know, I I feel like my 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 pain is not my, my my pain is not sufficiently controlled. And when they do say that, I know you mentioned abdominal binder and things. What proportion of patients do you think that it uh, they will actually require narcotic medication? Is that a high proportion? Is that common? 
No, I think since we've started this, um, I could look back and I was looking at what you were talking about before we started working on MPOP and I used to prescribe 60 pills of oxycodone for them to be going home. And then we did MPOP and five was the most I would give people and their pain was well controlled. So since we've gone to narcotic free, some patients have been concerned with it initially if they didn't have that pre-education, but now that they're pre-educated, they understand that. But the ones before we, when we were starting to kick this off, we started postoperatively narcotic-free, and by the time I'm seeing them the following morning, their pain is controlled, and I educate them on alternating Tylenol with Motrin at home, the binder, and alternative ways of dealing with their pain. And since, since we've started that, I think I can remember only writing maybe one or two prescriptions of narcotics, and that was because of people that were on chronic pain medication before, and there was just no way we were going to control their pain without it. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. That's that's really, uh, your perspective is really important, specifically because oftentimes we're not the ones fielding those those calls and seeing them uh, over a longitudinal period of time in the postoperative setting. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, what I would say is, is that um, you put a big smile on Dr. Brummett's face. I, I presume it's because you're <laughs> prescribing less opioids, which is great. Yes. Um, and I have a question for Dr. Brummett uh, that, and it came in from our audience, is that, you know, we do try to focus on Toradol or, or NSAIDs or other medications. Mm -hmm. uh, is that a, a lowest GFR level in which you think it's still safe to prescribe uh, Toradol? Yeah, I, that's a hard one to answer right off the top of my uh, top of my head. I, I think that for people that are severely impaired, I think you got to be careful. And even those for for Toradol in particular, with 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 modest GFRs, um, uh, this has been a part of you know what Michigan Open has been working to clarify, which is um, most people do well with short term NSAIDs, but um, I don't have a specific number off the top of my head. Um, Obviously, those with severe renal impairment, you, you want to have pause. I, I think this is one of the limitations with where we are with non-steroidals today. Um, and, and these are the few exceptions. And you guys probably deal with this more as urologists than, than the average surgeon. But um, this is one of the, the limiting factors for non-steroidals. But I would say, you know, acetaminophen is still underrated. And um, I think the goal is to do uh, to improve the masses. I think if you have periodic patients that that require opioids, you're still doing well overall, right? And so there may be patients who can't get NSAIDs who are appropriate for opioids, and and I don't think you have to beat yourself up over that. I, th thank you. So um, thank you, Doctor. Uh, um Dr. Jeremy Johnson for that for that question. Um, I know that sometimes I'll use Toradol even in partial nephrectomies and things like that, where I know that they're likely going to take an acute hit uh, in their uh, in their GFR. But yeah, certainly that that gives us some pause. And uh, and and you you know it may not be uh, NSAIDs may not be the best approach for for all patients. Um, now, uh, Dr. Dr. Monty, I have a question for you. You've kind of led the music collaborative uh, since its since its inception. And so um, it's uh, the, the initial discussion about opioid limited pathway uh, was really well received. And I think that it's a much higher, it's a much higher hurdle to, uh, or hill to climb when we, when we try to transition towards an opioid free prostatectomy. What do you think are um, the, the current barriers to implementing an opioid free radical prostatectomy statewide? I think um, as surgeons, you know, we've been indoctrinated throughout our entire careers that people needed more pain medication and narcotics, particularly after surgery. And so a lot of it is dispelling the myth that you need narcotics after surgery. 
And so it'll be both to overcome the barrier of the habit that both patients, as Mary mentioned, and the surgeons to think that people need narcotics and that other things won't work as well. And in likely they may work even better. So uh, a lot of it is going to be just breaking our own habits and our own preconceived notions that uh, narcotics are necessary. Once we start doing it, I think you find out that they're not necessary. And also sometimes we sometimes we also uh, request a phone call directly to the provider to doc, from Dr. Monty to say, you know, twist the arm a little bit. No, no, he doesn't do that. But, yeah, I'll be happy uh, to do that. We do, we do, say do sometimes a lot of arms. <laughs> we do sometimes use Dr. Monty as the enforcer of the music collaborative. Um, we have some, some additional questions that are coming in. Um, uh, thank you, Dr. Coton. Uh, the question was, what is the concern for bleeding with the use of NSAIDs in the first couple of days after, uh, after surgery? Um, uh, I, I'll take a stab at this uh, at first. I haven't, in my own personal experience, I've used it pretty extensively throughout uh, uh, laparoscopic renal and uh, prostate surgery, um, and I haven't really noticed any um, increase in bleeding events. Um, you know, I think there's anecdotally, if the patient is oozy already, uh, it's usually just a control issue with your surgery. It's not the medication that's causing uh, the issue. Um, uh, Dr. Brummett, you probably get this question a lot, especially from surgeons, and, and maybe they may not ask you, but you know that that's one of their reservations in terms of um, using a, a, a NSAID strategy. Sure. What are your thoughts? I think taking away the, um, you know, the earlier mentioned uh, renal function issues, I think the reality is, is that short courses of NSAIDs are, are really quite safe. Um, you know, there, there are um, rare examples, but I think with the bleeding risk, um, it's been greatly overstated. And I, I think we, we've seen this for our ENT surgeons uh, in particular, you know, tonsils and adenoids. I uh, can't give an NSAID because of this. And, you know, we, we, we have published uh, some work looking at some national data where we just don't see that, that same effect from um, from NSAIDs and, and bleeding that, that is concerning. I, I think when you have a bad event, you like to look around for a problem. Uh, we have an anesthesiologist on the screen right now, so if you're having a problem today, I'm here. I'm here. Um, to, we can blame <laughs> anesthesia, but I, I think the reality is is that the the um, the risks uh, of NSAIDs when it comes to bleeding are, are quite low. Um, you know, I, I do think for people that are high cardiac risk, um, you want to have some pause with, with non-steroidals. Um, and, and, and certainly, um, you guys already think through renal function probably more so than any other group of surgeons, but, um, but you know, most of the ill effects for NSAIDs that are described by providers and then patient communities, some of the opioid advocates in the community are based on chronic long-term use. And there's no doubt there are ill effects from chronic long-term use of, of non-steroidals. However, I just don't think that those mirror in. And frankly, the, the studies aren't, aren't, aren't um, super ro as robust for the, the short-term use, but the reality is we just are not seeing those problems. And I think the, the widely accepted view is, is that they're quite safe for short-term use. Thank you. And uh, you know, Dr. Kosminski shared that, that he uses uh, sub-Q heparin pre-op and total post-op and has been doing so for a long period of time without any bleeding issues. I would say that that's pretty consistent with my practice. I, I uh, give uh, uh, sub-Q heparin as well preoperatively to every every single patient. Um, and so um, uh, so I think that, you know, uh, there are there's also growing bodies of evidence in terms of operating on 
uh, anticoagulation and no significant increased bleeding risk, uh, especially with sub-Q heparin, but also uh, also with NSAIDs. And it's good that, uh, and I'm glad, uh, uh, Dr. Brahmet, that you're able to share outside what happens outside of urology, because oftentimes, uh, you know, we are so insular and we have kind of tunnel vision. We're so focused on urologic literature. We don't really take into consideration, you know, the, the, the application of similar studies where there's a greater breeding risk, like you mentioned in ENT. Um, we have some additional questions uh, coming in. Um, and uh, as I'm, I'm taking those questions, I have one more question for you, Dr. Brahmit, is that there has been some discussion regarding regional pain blocks. Um, and I've heard mixed reviews. I've heard some sites that say some patients wouldn't even know that they had surgery. And some, and some, so, some physicians will feel that maybe it doesn't make a huge difference, or maybe it's a perceived difference that's not actually happening. What are your thoughts? I know that there's tap blocks that have been described, QL blocks, um, uh, specifically for, for prostate, and uh, maybe even for you know uh, kidney surgeries when the when the incisions are maybe lateralized. Yeah, I think that the um, the use of tap box and quadratus lumborum blocks has, has definitely increased, um, and I think they have value. I think one of our challenges with the modern local anesthetic is that it's 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 its duration of effect is not very long. That said, when you put it into a tap, sometimes you'll see a, a clinical effect that long outweighs the, um, the, the pharmacologic effect. In other words, if you're expecting eight to 12 hours for bupivacaine or ropivacaine, you may see something closer to 24 hours just through sort of that attenuation of the, the surgical event and the, the sort of windup of pain. At least that's the, the theory. Um, the one thing I don't advocate for is, is the use of liposomal bupivacaine. I, I will say I, 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 I have a conflict in that I consult for another company, but my, my opinions for liposomal bupivacaine predate that relationship. And I think the, the challenge here is that, that is being used more and more widely. And that's Exparel, is that X4L, correct? Exparel, yeah. I, sorry, I just didn't want to use the, but, but the, it's being used more and more widely, but really there aren't um, good data to support that you're doing anything more than driving up costs by using that. Uh, and, and most anesthesiologists, most in the acute pain regional anesthesia community have gone past and just really are not using that. Um, so um, I, I think there's a role for regional. I think it can help reduce opioid need intraoperatively and in the immediate post-op period. But I think by the next day, you know, patients are going to look pretty similar by the next day. Gotcha. And, and this is a question for the entire panel. I think this is a great question that's coming in from our, from, our, from our participants as well. How do you respond to physicians who are concerned about decreased reimbursement as a result of patients saying that their, their, their pain is poorly, poorly controlled postoperatively and they receive a, a poor satisfaction score and, um, on a survey from an insurance company? Is that, I mean, is that, is that a legitimate concern? Um, do, do you think that manifests itself? Are, are we there yet? Is that something that you know, could happen in the future? Well, we did have payment incentives with HCAPs at one point, but that's been removed. I think the bigger concern people probably have is, will I get the next referral? And uh, I think that that's a different piece. But again, we haven't seen a single piece of data come back that suggests people are going to be more dissatisfied. They care that you talk to them. They care you call when you have a problem. So, uh, you know, Mary probably deals with these problems when she calls them and she gives them the customer service that they need. Um, that's what they care about. It's not the pills. 
I think most people, as long as they have the education ahead of time, that they're going to not receive any narcotics from this procedure coming in, they already know that it, it really helps. It's the ones that don't have that education beforehand. That seems to be more of the issue If someone, it's usually the patient that have um, a history of chronic pain to begin with. And if they don't have that understanding that this is a procedure that we do without any pain management or narcotic pain management afterwards, that's where your problem is. And I've probably only had experience with maybe one or two people since we've done the narcotic free. Thank you. And, uh, as we wrap up our discussion, I wanna thank again all of our panelists, Dr. Monty, Dr. Brummett, uh, Mary Nolan, thank you so much for your expertise uh, and joining us uh, uh, this evening. Uh, I'd like to transition now to introduce uh, Dr. Casey Dow. He's a, he's a colleague of mine and a good friend. Um, he is an, he's an assistant professor of urology and he leads uh, within endo urology and he leads the, the rocks uh, portion of, our, of the music, uh, music collaborative. So um, uh, I, I, welcome, I welcome his expertise in the, in the rock space. Thank you, Casey. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Arvin, for that uh, great presentation and recap on what we're doing in music prostate. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Casey Dow. I'm the program director for Music Rocks. And what we're going to be discussing tonight is appropriateness criteria for ureteral stent emission following ureteroscopy. So the big question is why ureteral stents? Why is that the subject of our talk today? This kind of illustrates what we've been doing thus far after ureteroscopy estate, which has largely been around decreasing unplanned healthcare encounters. We know that the patients develop pain, uh, present to the hospital with renal colic, in appropriate circumstances undergo surgery, um, but largely our interventions to this point to keep patients out of the emergency department afterwards have surrounded pain optimization and education around symptoms to expect with the stent and how to optimize pain. But we've heard loud and clear from member urologists that decisions that we make in the operating room carry weight. And one of those common decisions that we make is whether or not to place a ureteral stent. So that's what we're gonna be focusing on today. So if we look at the data, you know, data is power and that's what we have within music. We find that in just shy of three quarters of patients, a ureteral stent is placed after ureteroscopy. And if we were to look on to understand the proportion of those patients that then go on to require an unplanned healthcare encounter, or in this case, an emergency department visit, we find that the rates of ED visits are higher in those that are stented versus those that are not stented. Now, recognizing that there are a variety of factors that may impact whether a stent is placed, even after adjusting for case complexity, whether or not a ureteral access sheet is used and a variety of other factors, we find that the odds of an emergency department visit in those patients that are stented increases by 25% relative to those that are unstented. It's important to note uh, that we believe there's room to move on this. Uh, this is provider level data here. So these uh, on the uh, 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 axis here are music rocks urologists plotted with regard to the proportion of cases in which they place a ureteral stent. And what we can see is that there is a tremendous amount of variation in rates of stent placement, ranging from as low as 9% to as high as 100%, meaning uniform stent placement. And as you can see here, when we stratify those urologists based on case volume, high volume being those doing more than 50 ureteroscopies and those doing less than or just greater than 10 ureteroscopies, there seems to be no difference. They fall on either end of the spectrum. When we evaluate this at a practice level, so looking now at ROCKS practices, we say that, see the same degree of variation. So there are some practices, take practice A for instance, where stent placement seems uncommon, and then practices U, V, W, and X there on the right that are almost uniformly placing stents. 
Now, panel B there, or group B, that's Michigan Medicine. So what I can tell you is that we kind of fall on the left end of the spectrum. We stent patients approximately 55% of the time. And we recognize that it's just not the emergency department visits that are important when we're looking at stent placement. It's how the patients experience the stent that really is another important factor. So this is pilot data um, surrounding patient reported outcomes in patients at Michigan Medicine. So this is 60 patients followed prospectively. And we used a validated questionnaire that looks at pain intensity and pain interference uh, related to surgery. So what you can see here is on the left side, this is pain intensity. How bad was your pain in its worst in the last seven days? And what we see is those patients that had no stent in blue versus those that had a stent in orange, there was a substantial change in the amount of pain intensity reported, which favored no stent after surgery. When we look at the right side of this graph, which is pain interference, that is how did the pain impact quality of life and daily activity, we again see at seven days following surgery, those that were not stented reported significantly less pain interference than those who had a stent. Now there's one big question that everyone has about this, and we've heard this uh, from many urologists across the state. One of the fears that we have is if a stent is omitted after surgery, how often do patients come back with either ureteral spasm or obstructing fragments that would require an emergent stent placement? And what we found, again, using a single center at Michigan Medicine, in just shy of 400 patients who were stent naive and then went on to have ureteroscopy where a stent was not placed after surgery, the rate of emergent stent placement was 0.5%. So in light of the that stent placement may negatively impact patient-reported outcomes as well as rates of emergency department visits. We utilize the robust methodology, which Dr. Hiller, talking uh, after Dr. Wolf, will describe in detail, called the RAND-UCLA appropriateness methodology. In essence, we convened a 15-member panel of music urologists, a mix of academic and community uh, diverse practitioners, invited an expert moderator, who I'll, who I'll introduce next, Dr. Stuart Wolf and a local moderator, Dr. Michael Scherer, who has unique experience and expertise in this methodology as we used it uh, for active surveillance for prostate cancer to come up with some guidance surrounding stent placement after ureteroscopy. And so as I'm turning this over to Dr. Wolf, what I wanna highlight to everyone here is that the talks that we're presenting coming forward are to provide guidance, not guidelines. Certainly we're not trying to dictate or change everybody's practice or create something that's too prescriptive. Our goals are to reduce practice and surgeon level variation, which we saw several slides ago, were substantial across the ROCKS collaborative with regard to stent placement. Our end goal here is both to decrease emergency department visits, but most importantly, to improve patients' quality of life. And we're seeing with emerging data from our center, as well as uh, the forthcoming patient reported outcomes initiative within ROCKS, that stents likely impact that to a great degree. Our work should determine areas of uncertainty or disagreement with when a ureteral stent should or should not be placed and identify areas for improvement as we move forward. So with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Dr. Stuart Wolf. Uh, realistically, he needs no introduction. He's trained uh, hundreds uh, of urologists, both through residency and fellowship, was a force in the state of Michigan and a colleague and friend. Currently, he calls his home uh, Austin, Texas, uh, where he has a large administrative role uh, and functions at the Chief of Surgical Services at the Dell Medical School. Uh, in his role with the AUA, he has uh, crafted guideline statements surrounding uh, ureteroscopy and kidney stone disease, so serves as an excellent expert for us to give perspectives on ureteral stenting. So thank you very much, Stuart. Thank you very much, Casey. 
Um, so now I'd like to give you my perspectives on ureteral stenting. First, good place to start. Let's start with the data. The AOA and Endourology Society guidelines in 2016, uh, the 14th statement, following ureteroscopy, clinicians may omit ureteral stenting in uncomplicated patients. I had to put that parenthesis there because that's the index patient. This is a strong recommendation, the highest level recommendation the AOA has, and the evidence level is grade A based upon many RCTs. So this is very strong recommendation. You may omit ureteral stenting in uncomplicated patients. Now, if you look at the recommendation from the EAU, they're a little more prescriptive. The evidence is similar in uncomplicated ureteroscopy. A stent need not be inserted. We're all looking at the same evidence. But the Europeans get a little more prescriptive. Do not insert a stent in uncomplicated cases. Not the may, but do not insert a stent. Strong recommendation. And in the United Kingdom, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence uh, is even more prescriptive. They say, regarding the use of stents after ureteroscopy, do not routinely offer post-treatment stenting to adults who have ureteroscopy for ureteric stones less than two centimeters. So they don't even talk about uncomplicated or complicated, and they're going all the way to two centimeters. I personally think this is a bit much. Let's look at the data ourselves. This is probably the, uh, the best available data that's out there now, a Cochrane Systematic Review published just last year. Uh, 23 trials, almost 3,000 patients, uh, all uh, uh, randomized to stent versus no stent. So here are the outcomes or the summaries of the Cochrane Review. Number one, stenting may slightly reduce the number of unplanned return visits. May slightly. And even this is, you can see, very low COE, which stands for certainty of evidence. On post-operative days 4 to 30, stented participants may experience more pain, but the other finding was stenting may reduce need for narcotics. So that kind of doesn't make sense. Um, and again, however, both statements for it were very low certainty of evidence. Um, Ureteral stricture rates up to 90 days may be slightly reduced by stenting. Again, low uh, certainty of evidence. And hospital readmission rates may be slightly reduced by stenting. Again, low certainty of evidence. And there are no differences in infections, no differences in pain earlier than four days. So in summary, both the desirable and undesirable effects of stents were small in absolute terms. The findings were all based upon low and very low certainty of evidence. Um, the, even though these were RCTs, they were not great, amazing, outstanding RCTs. We were on the, the group was unable to conduct subgroup analyses and concluded that higher quality and sufficiently large trials are needed. But frankly, we've already done 23 RCTs on this one topic. Do we think we're going to get many more really big RCTs? Probably not. So, summarizing the Cochrane systematic review, I don't know, hard to know what to do. But let's get into the weeds a little bit, and I think we can be a little more helpful to our membership to try to figure out what to do here. So, let's back up and remember why we're placing stents, okay? Prevents are placed to provide benefits of, most importantly, preventing acute urethral obstruction. Why is that bad? Acute ureteral obstruction leads to pain, which leads to opioid consumption, extra healthcare contacts, including calls, visits to the office, the emergency department, even readmissions. 
Acute urethral obstruction can lead to upper tract infection, which can lead to urosepsis. Again, extra healthcare contacts, potentially even death. Acute urethral obstruction can lead to an unplanned second procedure and on occasion, acute renal insufficiency. Other benefits of stents include reducing delayed urethral obstruction from stricture, uh, which uh, causes pain, infection, or renal insufficiency. Um, this was mentioned in the Cochrane analysis. And although less studied, I personally feel that stents probably do facilitate, at least to some degree, fragment passage after removal, but this is lower down on the list. A composite benefit, and this is a very important composite benefit, is that when the patient comes to the emergency department and he or she has had a stent after their ureteroscopy, you know it's not That's not the problem. It's something else. And that's awful nice. All right. What are the costs of the stent? We talked about the benefits. Now, what are the costs? It's a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, the costs of the stent include the financial cost of the stent, increased operating room time with associated cost, the cost and inconvenience of removal. These aren't really that big a deal. The big things are, of course, the stent-related symptoms. That's the main thing we're trying to avoid with the stent or by not placing the stent. Maybe increased infections, not sure about that. Uh, healthcare contacts owing to stent symptoms, there are definitely those. And then, of course, the forgotten stent. You can't have an encrusted forgotten stent if you don't place a stent. So putting those costs and benefits together, what is the role of ureteral stents after ureteroscopy in complicated ureteroscopies? Well, in the setting of a complicated ureteroscopy, several of those adverse outcomes that we just talked about related to acute ureteral obstruction have a very high incidence if you didn't place a stent. And stenting reduces the incidence of acute ureteral obstruction and all the bad things that occur, or at least it reduces the severity of the obstruction compared to not stenting. Undeniable for a complicated case, the costs are quite acceptable, clearly outweighed by the benefits. We're going to place a stent, no problem. Now, for the uncomplicated cases, the costs are exactly the same. The only things that change are the benefits because the risk of some adverse events decrease with that, in that case, in the uncomplicated case. So the potential benefits of mitigating those adverse events decreases. So the balance changes. And the benefits, in fact, may no longer outweigh the cost. In an uncomplicated case, then, we're, we're left with, again, balancing the cost and benefits. And now it gets really tough because, well, in some cases, the benefit of the stent is stronger, so we're going to stent. And in some cases, the cost of the stent weighs more heavily in our mind, so we're not going to stent. How do we make those decisions? Well, a lot of the, what factors into how we make those decisions is how, in our own mind, we weigh those benefits and costs. They're apples and oranges, right? I mean, we have acute ureteral obstruction on one side, and we have stent pain on the other. How can you possibly compare those? Well, how we do compare those in our brain, that's our bias in the decision. Maybe we think, on the left side here, avoiding obstruction is the most important thing. You're biased towards stenting. Or maybe you think avoiding stent pain is the priority you're biased against stenting. You think more about costs. Even in the uncomplicated case, there are extremes. And we can likely agree on the extremes. I don't think we need to talk about those. You know, this tiny distal stone that you extract atraumatically with a single pass the scope, it was almost falling out before you got to it. 
and probably not going to stent that guy. Eh, another lady, small, multiple fragments in a patient with hydronephrosis, prior obstruction, history of obstruction. Last time you did a ureteroscopy and you didn't place the stent. Yeah, probably going to stent her. But what we're really talking about are those uncomplicated cases in the middle. And that's exactly what Music Rocks is trying to address right now. We're trying to organize our thinking about the factors that impact the stenting decision. And we're working together to weigh those factors similarly within the collaborative so that we have a more standardized approach to stenting. That's what we're trying to do. So based upon some of those thoughts and some of the great work that's been done, uh, the next talk is when is it appropriate to not leave a stent? This is by Spencer Hiller. Spencer Hiller, Dr. Hiller is the endurology fellow at the University of Michigan, and he will describe the findings of the ROCKS appropriateness panel when they applied the RAND UCLA appropriateness methodology. Thank you very much. Dr. Hiller, yours. Thank you, Dr. Wolf, for the introduction, and thanks to Music for giving me the opportunity to present this work. Dr. Dow and Dr. Wolf have already well established the foundation for the concept behind this project. While we clearly set out to determine the appropriateness of ureteral stent utilization in specific clinical scenarios, we quickly discovered a major limitation in our concept in that the placement of the ureteral stent may never actually be inappropriate. So acknowledging this, we instead set our sights on determining when it is appropriate to not place a stent or rather the appropriateness of stent omission. This multi-step process began by looking internally at what the Music Rocks registry has to offer us. Within the registry, we identified the factors associated with ureteral stent placement during ureteroscopy. We identified six factors associated with an increased risk of stent placement and only one factor associated with stent omission, namely the presence of a ureteral stent prior to ureteroscopy. Next, because this process requires panelists to, to consider specific clinical scenarios, it requires that they have an index patient in mind as they determine an appropriateness score. In order to minimize the effects of unaccounted for variables, we focused on defining uncomplicated ureteroscopy as these are clearly the scenarios most appropriate for stent omission. This meant eliminating situations such as pregnancy, urinary tract reconstruction, or untreated UTI. Clearly, stent omission is inappropriate when ureteral perforation or trauma occurs. With this index patient in mind, Panelists then settled on seven variables that they felt significantly impact their decision to omit a ureteral stent after ureteroscopy. This included stone location, either in the kidney or ureter, stone size broken into three categories, pre-stenting status of the patient, urine culture results, which can either be negative or an appropriately treated positive urine culture use of ureteral dilators, as well as ureteral access sheath, and lastly, the presence or absence of fragments at the conclusion of ureteroscopy. And in order to account for the practice of dusting, we included very small fragments in with a total absence of fragments. 
The panelists then scored 144 clinical scenarios on appropriateness for ureteral stent omission based on all possible combinations of these variables. Scoring was from one to nine, one being highly inappropriate for stent omission, nine being highly appropriate for stent omission. We then collated the panelists' scores to determine a median appropriateness score for all 144 clinical scenarios. We identified 26 scenarios that the panelists felt were appropriate for ureteral stent omission and 88 scenarios inappropriate for stent omission. This heat map is evidence of the volume of data we collected. Each colored square represents an individual clinical scenario. The scenarios in green were scored appropriate for stent omission. The scenarios in red were scored uh, inappropriate for stent omission. The yellow scenarios felt somewhere in between. The results follow the types of trends you would expect. The majority of scenarios appropriate for omission were in pre-stented patients, represented by the top line of boxes. They also were in smaller stone sizes, shown towards the left side of your screen. I will also point out the panelists did feel some non-pre-stented patients were appropriate for stent omission so long as their stone was less than one centimeter in size and they had a negative urine culture, no ureteral dilation or access sheet was used, and they did not have large residual fragments. What do we do with this? Well, we've identified a group of scenarios, we'll call it our target population, that were felt by the panelists to be appropriate for stent omission. Although they do not represent all of the scenarios found to be appropriate, they do represent a large number of patients in the ROCS registry. This target population includes patients with or without a pre-stent, with stones located in either the kidney or ureter. Their stone size is less than or equal to 10 millimeters. They have a negative urine culture, no ureteral dilation is performed, no access sheath is used, and they have small or no residual fragments. And we hope in this patient population, you will consider stent omission. I think it's important to mention that these are not guidelines that we've created. While individual patients may meet criteria for our results, we still leave room for your own clinical judgment and shared decision-making with the patient. This chart demonstrates the rate of ureteral stent placement in this target population. We clearly see a significant amount of variation in practice patterns. Stent placement rates range from 30% to 100% in ROCS practices and the current average rate of stent placement in this target population is 60%. We have set a modest goal for reduction in stent placement in this target population from 60% to 50%. We hope that by considering stent omission 
in this target population, we can translate these results into practical quality improvement for both the patient experience as well as surgical outcomes. Next, we will be disseminating these results with more granularity to practices so they can use this information to better assist with patient counseling and operative decision-making. You'll be able to track your stent omission rate in patients meeting criteria with the ROCKS reports that you already receive. And lastly, we'll be tracking things from the patient perspective via patient reported outcomes from participating practices. Our goal has always been to improve the patient experience with ureteroscopy via a reduction in emergency department visits. The, thus far, this has been implemented via measures to improve the patient education as well as post-operative pain management practices. <clears throat> with the stent omission criteria, we hope to prevent unnecessary stent placement, thereby reducing patient morbidity and discomfort. And forthcoming, we'll be tracking how we are doing from the patient perspective via patient-reported outcomes. I'd like to thank everyone that has assisted with me in this project. And a special thank you to all of our panelists. We welcome any questions. Okay, uh, that was a great session. Thanks to Dr. Wolf and Dr. Hiller for their participation and excellent, uh, excellent work there. So we're going to open things up for questions um, now. I'm going to start by just asking a couple questions to our panelists to hopefully get things going. And certainly anyone who's interested in asking questions about the stuff that was presented around stent appropriateness should please respond via the chat. Um, so my first question is for Dr. Wolf, and then maybe afterwards Dr. Hiller could chime in. You know, we gave you a lot of information. One of the cool things about using the appropriateness criteria that we employed was the robustness of the methodology. But what it really outputs is a ton of data that might not be relevant to practice immediately. So, Stuart, for you, based on what you learned from the initial meeting and the results that Spencer's uh, um, presented, how could this potentially impact your practice? Um, I think we... Uh, uh, it is a good idea to try to get everybody on the same page in terms of the criteria for not stenting. We're never going to move the needle in terms of systematizing improvement in patient care with regards to stenting practices until we can at least agree on what we're talking about our criteria should be. So this work that music is doing is very important in that regard. Spencer, um You've been living, breathing, dreaming about appropriateness and stent emission for your entire research year and have done a great job. You knowing the data better than anybody, what would you say going into practice now in six to eight months uh, on your own is, is going to, how is this going to impact you? Yeah, so I think one of the most interesting parts of this process was the robust literature review that really began the entire thing. And I learned quite a few things uh, that perhaps weren't already practiced for me. Things such as uh, uh, stent omission after ureteral access sheet use is okay if the patient's pre-stented. Um, you know, the, the role of residual fragments uh, at the conclusion of ureteroscopy, it, it 
it makes a difference. And there's a lot of uh, variation in practice patterns that I've seen uh, both in residency and in fellowship now uh, with regard to aggressiveness with dusting. And so I think that um, despite the variation in practice patterns, I think that we uh, can uh, at least come to some consensus in terms of uh, uh, how often we should be stenting patients and agreeing that we should attempt to minimize the role of ureteral stents. So just to, again, spur some conversation, Based on Spencer's discussion here and what we found, you know, 15 participating music rock urologists, various backgrounds, academic, private, all sat down in a room, spent time half day and then a full day coming to conclusions around these case scenarios. And what we found is that there, you know, despite the fact that three quarters of patients across the state get a stent at the time of ureteroscopy, we found that somewhere around 30 to 40 percent might safely have a stent omitted. So um, what are you know, panelists, what are people that are on the chat right now thinking about that? Someone like a Dave Levitt, who I know that's on, or a Mo Jaffrey, um, who was on the panel himself. Um, obviously, we can't hear you, but um, chime in. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are surrounding this work. I think I alluded to it a little bit with the composite benefit. Um, you know, when you stent someone, and you, you, you know that nothing really bad is going to happen except for pain. The absolute worst thing that's going to happen is the patient's going to suffer pain. And we're not, we're not being mean people. We're not being horrible. But if we stent them, you know what? They're not going to get septic. They're not going to show up with renal insufficiency. All these bad things aren't going to happen if we stent them. So the, the motivation to place a stent is, is, is very appropriate. It's not misguided. It's not wrong. It's just that we have to accept the reality that for many of those cases where we're placing a stent out of an abundance of caution, as they say in current parlance, that we maybe maybe we're applying that too abundantly. No, <laughs> maybe, I, you, know, you know, there are some cases where we don't have to do that. Stuart, so we got a we got a response, and Michael Cotent had a question about stents left on danglers that I'm going to come back to, but kind of dovetailing off Stuart's comment, I think most people, if I could see you, would be nodding their head when they say that we place a stent because we don't want to be left holding the bag if that patient comes back at 10 p.m. with ureteral spasm and needs to go back to the operating room for an urgent stent. So Brian Stork mentioned that he completely agrees with everything that's been said, but his experience is that anytime he omits a stent, he's ultimately going to have to come back if they come back with colic and place a stent. He's the 10th add-on that the hospital's looking at. He's stuck. So I can understand um, that. What was everyone's reaction? Stuart, yours in particular. I think we all remember that event because it's a pain in the neck. But again, out of 400 patients just at Michigan Medicine with you know fair bit of case complexity, only two of those patients went back to the OR, so less than 1%. So that's one in 100 of your calls, if you want to think of it that way. Um, what are people's reactions to that? I think we're all a, a bit of, of, of victims to recency bias when it comes to this. And, and Stuart's comment of an abundance of caution probably applies here too. Yeah, and, and if I can just chime in on that, and really the question is focused to Stuart. But first of all, you know, thanks, Spencer. Congratulations. Great 
great talk and you really led this project for us in the state and we we salute you for that Stuart you were critical in the in the meetings with the panel one uh, getting everyone together and that buy-in so and I've been reflecting you you articulated this issue that Casey's talking about right the well you want to avoid an emergency situation but you have been you know if I look at your career and the work that you've done here you've been a big driver for stent emission, done a lot of studies on this. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that we picked you as a content expert. What made you do that? What was your motivation? If, if you know that you can sleep well at night, what, what was your motivation? That's a, that's a great question. And, I, and, you know, we're not supposed to practice medicine anecdotally, uh, but I remember some patients, you know, fairly early in my endurology career where I just, you know, thought I did a wonderful job removing their stone. Just a great little, you know, grab and run. Nice job, Stuart. Great work. You're such a wonderful doctor. And you put us and they looked at you like you were the worst person ever. You know, you have made me feel so bad. You have ruined me right now. I'm peeing blood. I, I, I can't move. I have to be admitted for intrathecal narcotics. Okay, that might be a bit much, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, and I just felt horrible. And then I read the randomized controlled trial, the John Denstad, the first one that was done. And I'm like, oh, for heaven's sakes, I didn't need to do that. They could have walked out of the operating room and it would have been fine. And that's kind of what really drove me to do it was, was that, 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 you know, primum non necessary, right? I don't want to hurt people. Yeah. And placing the stent, if it's unnecessary. And, and I think, uh, you know, we have to put ourselves in, and I know Casey's going to feel that, and I hope those who are listening, please, you have to, this is the opportunity, because this is not a, an easy subject to, to for us as a group to tackle. So we need to hear your perspectives, but you you talk about, it's the patient, right? And And so we are thinking about the patient's perspective, but then it's the physician's perspective of, well, we, we want to avoid this rare scenarios in which Casey has shown that data. And I think we have to remember, Casey, I remember in the, in the meeting, we had our patient advocate who, who Dennis had said, it's really important that we think about the patient's perspective in this and that the patient voice was telling the physicians in the room, please do, do that extra mile. If you can avoid a stent, find those scenarios where stent emission is feasible. Yeah, and so just to come back so we don't forget, because now there are some questions coming in. Michael Cotin asked, what about the stent that's left with a tethering string to be removed at some point after surgery? I think if you're going to leave a stent, um, especially in these times when we're trying to keep people out of the office, assuming my general rule, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but would be that if you don't, if you absolutely could not live with the stent coming out in one to two days before day five or day seven, don't leave it on a string because those are the ones that are going to get, you know, nipped or come out. But if you're comfortable with that stent potentially coming out, I think the tether is a great thing for patients. I don't really think it increases the infection risk. It's much more convenient. You can keep them out of the office, which is important right now. So that's a great question. Um, Elena Jimenez, uh, who was on the panel, um, uh, uh, has been a great partner uh, on the rock side. Uh, did mention that using some of these criteria that Spencer mentioned, she's found no increase in the need for subsequent stenting uh, when she's omitted stents. So that's really great feedback. And I think um, if if we could maybe draw a parallel here, I remember 
being very nervous to stand up in front of the group um, when we pitched the idea of going opiate-free after ureteroscopy. And the huge feedback we got from everybody, maybe Brian Stork uh, and others included, was I give opiates because I don't want to get a phone call or have an ED visit and, and have my partners on call have to deal with it. And I think there's a parallel here with stent placement that we're not appreciating. And what I can tell you is our opiate use has fallen dramatically across the state. We haven't seen it as an, at an expense of ED visits or phone calls. And so I'm not saying that this is as black and white with ureteral stenting, but I think there are some parallels there that we should remember. Everyone reacted to that as we have to give opiates because they're going to call me. And we haven't found that to be the case. So um, we've got a couple other um, questions that are coming in. Uh, Lewis Johnson uh, mentioned something similar to what I heard from uh, Brian Stork via the chat, which is the only time he hears about the stent he did in places when his partners had to deal with it on call. I, I, I agree with where you're coming from, um, but I think this is something that we're going to be able to track going forward uh, as we continue to let the data mature on how commonly we actually go back for acute stent placement. Um, and then Michael Kosminski um, uh, from Grand Rapids uh, has a question. Do you think there is value in watching for ureteral efflux at the end of the case to determine appropriateness for stent or no stent? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I haven't been doing that personally. Um, you know, I, I work with a partner, Kershid Ghani, who uh, strongly feels that um, pre-treating with uh, 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 alpha blockers such as tamsulosin uh, may impact uh, you know, ureteral drainage and potentially uh, issues after surgery. And that kind of stems from some work around how hard it is to get an access sheath up in, in, in certain models. Um, so I think there might be something to that. In general, what I'm kind of looking at is how well I broke up the stone and just my general look at how the ureter looks. Uh, our, our work here is to try to take it out of the hands of just this, you know, odd gestalt judgment and try to put some factors on it. So that's a good question. Um, and then I got a question from Randy Chudler, which says, clearly it should be about the patient, but wonder if stent insertion varies between docs with residents and those that don't. That's a great question. Um, that's not something in all honesty that we've looked at. Um, but what I can tell you is if we were to just, you know, play odds and look at how variable stent placement is, um, whether the patient is, or the physician is a high volume, uh, ureteroscopist or low volume ureteroscopist, whether they're in private or academic practice, it doesn't appear to have much, uh, bearing on that, but that's a, that's an interesting question and something that we could certainly explore. Um, I uh, got a follow-up question for, or comment from Brian Stork, um, and he says, one thing that would make me use less stents is if we had the local resources to get patients back into the OR in a more timely fashion in the rare case where they need to have a stent placed. Um, this brings back some of the grassroots quality stuff we worked on, which was local access to care. I think that's a great point, and that's going to be uh, probably site by site that we look at that. Um, things are really hopping here now. I, I'm feel like Vanna White going back and forth. So um, we got a question from Jeremy Johnson. In private practice, the only time I hear about stent placement, okay, we, yep. <laughs> There's some common themes that we're getting here. Um, a couple, one question for the panelists uh, here, and this goes to Kershaw. There was a uh, interesting randomized controlled trial for the group that's on online here about silicone stents. Kershaw has been using them for quite some time. I think no should also be made that to this point, there's really been no positive trials, whether it's a Polaris stent versus a Percuflex stent versus a small volume stent versus yada yada. But these 
um, image instance, which is the coloplast version, have been shown to reduce pain and discomfort for patients. So, Kirsten, can you comment on if we were to place a stent, how stent material and durometer and all that stuff might play a role? So there is evidence that silicon as a material leads to less incrustation and with less incrustation, the biofilm, maybe that has an element of pain. And of course, there may be some element of infection as the stent duration increases. The, the study that was just came out from, from France was a multi-institutional study. And what they looked at though, the problem in Europe is the stenting duration is pretty long. It was around four weeks. You know, people can't get their stent removed. So I think it becomes critical then around novel stents. And they did find that at that threshold of 21 days, the silicon stent compared to a standard Percuflex had lower discomfort. I have used it. I, I think it's, I've seen a benefit in it in my practice. But again, I select because not, you know, if I think the patient needs a stent for only five to seven days and Maybe Stuart can comment a little bit on what he thinks the optimal timing of stent duration is. And then maybe Spencer can comment on pre-stenting because I think that's a group that is, for those out there who are saying, how do I make this transition to stent emission? I never admit, I'm always stenting. What's the first type of patient I could consider stent emission on? But, but I do think that the silicon stents, in my experience, for those who are stented for seven, 10, 14 days, I found it a benefit. But one thing I'll say to the group, music, we will be looking at this, not just in general. I think we're making strong efforts to look at this as a group in the state of Michigan and maybe consider a randomized trial and really provide some high quality evidence that's fit for the modern day and start to address this based on the, and build on this background of work that Spencer has presented today. So in the last 20 seconds we have, Spencer, I think that was a great point. What, what's the lowest hanging fruit for those that are the 100% stenters to potentially begin to test the water here? Yeah, so uh, I think Dr. Ghani hit the nail on the head that, um, you know, pre-stented patients already in several protocols that are out there are almost uniformly appropriate for stent omission so long as uh, it's not a complicated factor like ureteral perforation or something like that. So. Um, I would urge all of the collaborative that anytime you're operating on a pre-stented patient, that you consider them for stent omission. So for any other questions that come in or comments that come in, I can respond um, via the chat potentially. So we're not ignoring you. Um, and thanks for everybody's uh, great feedback here. I'm going to turn things over now to Dr. Brian Lane, um, who is uh, heads up our, our kidney program uh, within music. Uh, Brian is uh, a good friend and colleague um, who is really pushing uh, our understanding of how we treat uh, small renal masses in the state of Michigan. And so uh, it's with great pleasure that I introduce him for the next part of this talk. Thanks, Casey. Uh, I would like to provide a update on Music Kidney uh, for those of us uh, within the collaborative and those who are new to uh, what we're doing in music. Um, music Kidney is really off the ground and running. We've got 16 participating practices, always interested in increasing those numbers uh, and getting an even greater reflection of what's happening across the state. But we do have greater than 60 urologists participating at present, and we have greater than 2,500 patients who have been evaluated as new patients for a renal mass seven centimeters in size or smaller. And this includes 700 partial nephrectomies and 400 radical nephrectomies as well as a large number of patients who have been on surveillance. So one of our early um, wins has been nephrometry. 
uh, we've really uh, been encouraging uh, each of our colleagues across the state to document complexity scores. And this really is an important aspect of decision-making for tumors. I think we would all agree. Um, but one area that's been a challenge is getting that objective number on a sheet of paper so our colleagues uh, can uh, have it at their access. Um, so we did uh, lead a meeting in June 2018 where we presented this Goldilocks version. And the whole the goal was to try to get tumor complexity as simple as possible. Uh, and so really just these four components, R, E, N, and L, you just gotta give them a one, two, or three point scale and that'll, that'll get you your score. And so just like Goldilocks, it's either gonna be too small, too big, or just right for each of those four. So initially only 25% of urologists were routinely recording nephrometry in their charts. Uh, and after that meeting, 62% uh, of us said we were somewhat likely or very likely to record scores. So how have we done since June of 2018? Well, you can see there really is an increase. So the number of charts in which a renal score has been documented increased from 26% to 45%, but we still have some room to go. So I, I think the quality of the data we'll be able to share and the quality of the information we can learn from one another will only be as good as us showing up. And so uh, we may all have different opinions about some other things happening in the, in the next few weeks. Um, but I would just ask you whether or not you vote, however you cast your vote in November, we still want you to document renal scores. I think it would be great if we could push this number uh, way up so that we can benefit from that. And who knows if we can get an outstanding response, we may be able to provide stickers just like you see over there for our next in-person meeting. Of course, I don't know when that'll be either, but uh, let's, let's push this number up. So the second thing that I'd like to encourage you to do is to uh, follow the music guidelines for chest imaging. So as uh, many of you will recall, and again, it'll be new for some, uh, we felt that what would be most uh, important and beneficial for our patients was to make some hard and fast rules for imaging based on tumor size. And so for patients who have very small renal masses, their chance of metastasis is exceedingly rare. And so for tumors up to three centimeters, we feel that any imaging is optional. However, for tumors three centimeters and up, we are recommending chest imaging be performed, particularly for those with tumors above five centimeters in whom the risk of metastasis is, is real. And we feel that a CT of the thorax gives us the best opportunity to catch metastases in that group. Uh, we feel so strongly that we really would like uh, to see uh, increases in the three to centimeter range or three centimeters up. And so this has been the VVR metric we've selected for music kidney with a goal of 55%. So how have we done across the collaborative? Uh, well, for smaller tumors, for those less than three centimeters, we have seen some drop. And so I think that's good. Uh, we have an average of about 44% of our small tumor patients have some form of imaging, whether chest X-ray or CT. Uh, and again, we would suggest that a CT thorax is not necessary for staging in these patients. For those with tumors 3.1 to five centimeters, uh, we're right about at that 55% mark. On average, we're 51%. Uh, but there is some signal of a concern here where most recently there's been a fall off. So I don't know whether this is COVID uh, and our altered practices, uh, during that time, but I'm sure hopeful that we will not see a dip, but would rather see an increase uh, in the months to come. And then finally, for tumors greater than five centimeters in which we feel imaging is required, 
we really need to do better. We're at 58%, so we're above our goal, but we really would like to get this up closer to 100% uh, in the months to come. One of the new things that we're doing at uh, Music Kidney was we uh, piloted a virtual tumor board. Uh, we started this with an opt-in email list we sent out to all the music urologists about whether or not they would like to participate. Uh, and in the near future, we're hoping to transition this over to a web or app-based tool to reduce the number of uh, emails that come across once a case is posted. Um, we've begun with Music Kidney, but we really are planning to expand to other cancers and types of cases as well. So how have we done? We've had 39 physicians participating at present, uh, of whom 24 have either submitted a case or responded to a case. And so we, we feel that's very good uh, participation. Uh, and so we looked at the 12 cases presented so far, and they've really been a robust dialogue. You can see one example here uh, where this 52-year-old patient had a 2.3 centimeter tumor uh, in the upper pole, very endophytic, uh, pretty challenging partial, I would say. Uh, this patient did undergo a biopsy, and it showed renal cell carcinoma. Uh, and after this, uh, the tumor board felt uh, three individuals said robotic partial, four uh, suggested ablation for a variety of reasons, uh, and one suggested surveillance. So you can see it's uh, really not uh, unique or, or uniform uh, opinions that you're hearing. I think it's a pretty unique uh, opportunity to hear from colleagues and, and get some other ideas on our complex cases. So uh, I'd encourage you to participate. Uh, if you haven't yet, uh, email Anna at the address you can see there. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Amit Patel, who's joined uh, as a staff physician at Henry Ford to talk about uh, surveillance. Thank you, Dr. Lane, and uh, many thanks for this opportunity to discuss with you surveillance of renal masses, uh, what we can draw from current guidelines, what the current state of play is in music, and where we see areas for QI opportunity and future work. So what are the reasons for surveillance of uh, a renal mass? Maybe instigated for, uh, for lesion-related and patient-related factors, we may be faced with a lesion that is indeterminate or complex um, cyst in nature that may be reclassified into non-suspicious um, and lead to reassurance or suspicious and then uh, proceed to either surveillance or treatment. We um, may want to determine the rate of progression of that lesion and time may allow us that opportunity. And if we encourage a stable or expected growth, we may want to consider cons continued surveillance. Um, but if there's more rapid growth, consider treatment. Um, we might um, have patient-related factors such as life, limited life expectancy due to age or comorbidities, um, where we would reserve treatment for um, distant disease or progression in the form of symptoms. Um, but then patient may also have competing health risks, and time may allow us the opportunity to see whether those issues improve and can therefore lead to treatment or if the issues worsen and may warrant continued surveillance. Um, so when we have a patient who comes and sees us, you know, what are we, what are we doing with them? Um, we make a diagnosis um, of a renal mass. Um, you know, if it's suspicious, we may lead to treatment. Um, but if there are some of those factors I mentioned earlier, we may decide on a pattern of uh, initial observation. Um, this may be in the form of surveillance and the follow-up may be dependent on the whatever the urologist um, follows. Um, but you know, if that initial um, period of observation gives us a reassuring finding, may lead to no follow-up. 
Um, with those patients um, where we are on surveillance and there's progression, that again may lead to treatment. If there's no progression, that may lead to surveillance or reassurance. Um, so what are the benefits of initial observational surveillance? Well, surgery is associated with um, morbidity. Um, up to 15% of patients may have a complication and 5% of these may be a clavin three or higher. Um, the patient may be um, may have a kidney function loss or a need for dialysis, which has a cost in quality of life and associated morbidity and mortality. Um, you know, across the US, we remove almost 5,000 benign kidneys um, for renal masses, and there's an associated cost with, of this to the healthcare system as well as to the patient. Um, we know that cancer-specific survival for patients on surveillance is very high in the region of 95 to 100%, um, and is comparable for treated patients and properly selected patients. The risk of metastasis is very low, um, and when the lesion measures less than three centimeters, this can be less than 5%. So, you know, what do the guidelines say and who should be on surveillance? Um, we looked at the AUA, NCCN and EAU guidelines. Um, the AUA and NCCN suggest that um, surveillance is appropriate for lesions less than two centimeters. Um, NCCN stretches to four centimeters with predominantly cystic lesions, but um, the EAU do not provide any statements with regards to this. When we look at patient characteristics, um, again, there's without strong levels of evidence, there's general consensus that there's an option for patients with competing risks of death, um, the comorbid, and those with significant risk of morbidity and are uh, from treatment. Um, so what are we seeing across um, the music collaborative? Um, so we're, we're here, what we're talking about is this initial um, decision to instigate observation. Um, thus far in um, the renal mass registry, we have almost 2,300 patients. Um, when we exclude Bosniak to 1, 2, 2F and AML lesions, we're left with almost 2,100 suspicious um, renal masses. And what we're seeing across the collaborative is that 48% of these are initially observed. Um, of this, um, about 75% um, of these lesions are solid in nature. Um, what we do see is that there is significant variation across um, participating practices, ranging from 7 to 72%. And um, when we further segregate um, what the observation is in terms of um, the lesion type, um, we do see that there is a higher um, uptake in um, patients with an indeterminate or cystic lesion, cystic being either a Bosniak 3 or 4 cyst. Um, but again, solid, we're almost at 40% of those being initially observed. Again, when we um, look at, um, we discriminate against size. Um, predominantly, this is in patients who have a tumors less than two centimeters in size. Um, but what of note, 26% of tumors are greater than four centimeters in terms of initial observation. Um, we did a multivariable regression and tried to see what factors were associated with initial observation. What we found that lesion type, complex cyst and indeterminate, the smaller tumors, older age, um, non-renal malignancy and um, race um, were associated with um, higher levels of observation. Um, if we think back to those guidelines and in terms of the ideal candidates for surveillance, what are we 
um, observe, uh, what sort of rates are we seeing? Um, so when we look at solid or cystic lesions, less than two centimeters, um, lesions with cystic components up to four, these are around the 70, uh, 64 to 68% mark. Um, and, you know, when we look at patient-related factors such as comorbidity and age over 75, again, um, this was 58 and 77% respectively. So it does appear that we are selecting um, the patients and tumour and patient-related factors um, for surveillance. Um, but what should surveillance look like? Um, again, if we look back to the guidelines, um, really the AU doesn't really make any comments on what we should be doing. Um, the AUA and NCCN do agree in the fact that there should be some form of imaging within the first six months, but really the guidelines here aren't very clear and um, aren't, um, don't really help us in terms of um, coming up with a protocol for surveillance. Um, so what are we seeing in, across, the, uh, across the music collaborative? Um, what we do see is that there is variability about when the initial scan will be performed. Um, predominantly, this is um, between the four and six month mark. But if we look at it collectively, 98% of patients would have had a plan to repeat imaging within 12 months. Um, so what are we actually um, what are we actually doing? So the intent was to 98% to perform imaging within 12 months. Um, but when we looked at a subset of 340 patients who had completed 16 months of follow-up, um, we've seen just under 50% of these actually have abdominal imaging completed. Um, similarly, lower rates were seen with chest imaging and um, blood work in the form of um, a, a BMP. So perhaps there is a QI opportunity here for um, trying to improve these rates. Um, then if we look at delayed intervention, um, the guidelines again really are only the AUA offers some guidance as to when we should trigger intervention uh, and they suggest tumours over three centimetres in size, if there's been a stage progression or we're seeing a growth rate of over half a centimetre per year. Um, what do we see? How many patients are actually getting delayed intervention in the music collaborative? This is around 10% of our cohort again, from that 338 patients who have completed 16 months of follow-up. Um, you know, this is very similar to what is um, described in other studies, such as the DISARM. Um, what we do see here, though, is that 34% of patients didn't appear to have any follow-up um, at all. Now, that may be a, a multitude of factors. It could be that we um, the data is not... Um, uh, been collected or that patients have gone to see other providers, um, but definitely we see an opportunity for further investigation here. So in summary, um, the guidelines lack some clarity about where we should, um, who, um, who we should be surveying, what we should be surveying, and um, if you are going to be surveying patients, uh, what that follow-up should look like. Um, there is wide variation of um, surveillance across the collaborative and perhaps um, we need to investigate further with regards to our follow-up, um, what's actually happened to these patients. There definitely, we feel that there is some QI opportunities here to try and um, assess any areas um, where we can improve in the future. Um, one such goal that we do have is that given the, the lack of clarity in the guidelines and the variability in practice we see across Michigan, 
We feel there's an opportunity to try and pursue a consensus opinion across the collaborative. We plan to conduct a virtual Delphi panel with a goal to decrease um, variability, establish safe and acceptable surveillance strategies. Um, we'll try to establish a consensus on topics such as which patients to consider, how often to image, and what mode imaging modality and triggers for intervention. Um, so how will this work? Um, and we encourage those interested to participate. This will involve viewing or attending an introductory webinar. Um, this will be around 30 to 40 minutes. Um, following that, um, the participants will be sent um, three rounds of online questionnaires. Um, each round of questionnaires should take no longer than half an hour to fill out. And those rounds of questionnaires will be sent over a two week period. Um, we will then try and achieve consensus on aspects of patient and tumor selection and follow-up and delayed intervention. Um, an invitation will be sent out in the coming days following this meeting. Uh, and once again, we encourage you to participate. Um, but thank you for listening. And now we will open the question and answer session with myself, Dr. Lane, Dr. Rogers, and Dr. Smirgin. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Patel, for an excellent introduction uh, to this topic of surveillance for renal masses. And uh, just a reminder that we are open for questions and answers. Feel free to use uh, the group chat. Uh, and I just uh, wanted to start with uh, one here, um, and we'll start with Dr. Sumergen. Uh How does biopsy play a role uh, in selecting patients for surveillance? Uh, for, for surveillance, um, especially if a patient ha is older or comorbid or active surveillance seems to be, you know, kind of a no-brainer. I don't think it helps that much. In fact, it can uh, kind of introduce some, some doubt if patients do get a cancer diagnosis. Um, in younger patients who are less comorbid, I think it does help with the active surveillance decision. It may take away some of the anxiety. And then, uh, Amit, tell me a little bit uh, in terms of your thoughts with renal mass biopsy. You ever uh, sad that you've gotten one? Do you find yourself uh, ever backed into a corner because now you have a result? I mean, generally, you know, we've tended in our practice to utilize biopsy as a way of getting out on the procedure rather than um, using it to sort of help define the treatment. It's really those patients that we really don't want to operate on. Um, if we look to what was actually going on in music, so we, we looked at this and probably biopsy is only used in about 17% of our patients. Um, and, you know, there really wasn't a, an increased use in patients in, in active surveillance. And that's sort of mirrored in the guidelines. The guidelines don't really make any comments on the use of biopsy in that setting. Um, but I think that's where we lie. I don't know how Dr. Rogers feels on that as well. Yeah, Craig, Craig, did you want to comment about that? Or I, I don't I don't want to steal the thunder from the um the panel that we're planning to convene, but you know, tell us a little bit about how surveillance has, has come to be in in your practice over at Henry Ford. Well, I just think uh, I'm fascinated by the data. I'm really surprised at how high um surveillance is among in a statewide collaborative that um a lot of these patients aren't being rushed right to surgery. So I feel good about that. Um, I mean, there's still variability and that just like the music rocks presentation, you know, we want to, we're, these are, we're not looking to make guidelines. We're just looking to give guidance and reduce variability and improve the quality. And so 
one of the purposes of a Delphi panel is just to reach consensus as to which patients are most appropriate for this. Um, back on the question of the biopsy, I think, isn't it interesting that one of our keynote speakers, Stuart Wolf, not only is leaving the charge for stents, he was the driving force in the AUA for renal mass biopsy as well. And, um, and the biopsy, I feel, helps to um, make in decision-making for treatment versus no treatment. You know, so I use biopsy if I feel it'll change the clinical management. Um, like, Amit, like Dr. Patel said, if, if I can use it to get out of a treatment that I feel may not be in that patient's best interest, the biopsy helps me. Or if I don't even feel like they're a candidate for a biopsy, something non-invasive like a functional study, SESTA-MEB scan can also be helpful. Sure. I, I look forward to hearing from so many of the panelists to really get, get a good gauge on how we're evaluating upfront uh, patients and, and looking at whether it's primarily tumor factors or patient factors. Um, another question uh, comes around here is, how do you make a decision about transitioning off of surveillance? Um, we know that you know, the, the common things are you know, significant growth, uh, you know, growth uh, to either greater than three or four centimeters or greater than uh, something like 0.7 to a whole centimeter in a year. Um, what other factors uh, play into that? Uh, maybe Dr. Samurgeon, you want to speak to that? Yeah, so I think growth rate still is important, even though uh, we know that benign masses can grow at the same rate as cancerous masses. Um, once patients start to cross or get close to a threshold of about three centimeters is when I you know, will start to counsel them that at their next interval, if their mass has grown to around that size uh, and they're an appropriate surgical candidate, that we would be approaching coming off of active surveillance. Reasonable. Anyone have different thoughts when they're uh, getting more concerned? I guess just thoughts of when I'm less concerned. Um, <clears throat> you know, at some point, uh, the patient just wins out by the clock. You know, if you have a patient with uh, comorbidities and you're following them for years and years, and even if there's minimal change, but they're getting older and the likelihood of that disease harming them in their lifetime lessens, I feel more confident about graduating them even without a biopsy. Um, right. So, so I, I try to play out the clock, I guess. I feel similarly to you. And I, I, I'm interested um, when we engage with more colleagues about surveillance, whether this, um, whether surveillance as a plan is something that becomes gradually more and more uh, spread out over time, uh, or whether it's actually the nature of what's going on in any individual that leads us to have kind of a more high intensity uh, or low intensity plan. Um, my sense is you start at three months, go to six months and go to 12 months. Uh, and, and the question is how quickly do you get there in, in a given person? Uh, or as you say, graduate uh, someone to no further imaging or every two or three years. Amit, tell me about, uh, for you, what are, in terms of a trigger, is there any anything hard and fast for you, or is it is it really uh, gestalt? I think well? it's really patient-dependent. Um, obviously, as everyone said, you've got to take into consideration their comorbidities, life expectancy, and you know, as patients are on surveillance, you know, their conditions change. 
And so they may may become less appropriate for any treatment. And so it's not really surveillance that we're talking about. It's going to be more of a sort of watchful waiting um, intervention in terms of managing distant disease rather than managing the localized tumor. Um, so I really do think it's patient specific. Um, you know, it's also about the shared decision making with the patient and making sure they have the information that to be able to balance those um, options up um, well for themselves. Um, you know, some of those things maybe bring into, into play things like risk calculators about their expected life expectancy. You know, they, again, those are somewhat um, so not necessarily personalized to each patient, but using mass data. But, you know, can those things actually help in people, patients' decision making? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I think surprised me and has really kind of uh, impressed me with the work that we've got going on is all of the initial observation. Uh, and I feel like it's become less of a question of if a patient started on surveillance, what are the triggers to get them off? I think that's pretty pretty much as Craig stated, once you're on, you're, you're on and, and it's unlikely you're going to get off. I think the bigger question is identifying upfront who are the lower risk patients, who are the patients that actually had uh, indeterminate lesions that were found not to be suspicious, either because of a benign biopsy or because they ended up being a hyperdense cyst. Um, so I think that's something we're going to keep uh, focusing on in the group and and helping folks to realize that it, you know a contrast-enhanced study with a bright lesion does not necessarily mean uh, that that's an enhancing renal mass. And I, I think that's something that's going to uh, be an important part of, of uh, our quality improvement work. Um, question here from Brad Rosenberg, uh, which I think is uh, spot on. Uh, he says, I find that biopsy Furman grade doesn't seem to correlate with pathologic, pathologic grade. Uh, is there any data on that? Uh, because of this, I don't really consider grade when I am considering active surveillance after biopsy. Uh, Dr. Rogers, you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, he's exactly right. I mean, some of that data came out of Hopkins looking at grade heterogeneity, comparing biopsies and nephrectomy specimens. It was more accurate when they looked at just grade three and four combined and one and two combined. You could be a little more accurate at looking at a high grade versus a low grade. I mean, it's still going to help you if you get high grade on a biopsy, where it's less helpful is if it's a grade one or two, because that could get upgraded, right, on the nephrectomy. But uh, but if I get a biopsy that's clear cell, you know, high grade, then I'm going to be more concerned about that, more inclined to pursue an aggressive treatment. But uh, it's a good point. You, it's more just, uh, I'm looking at it as a yes or no answer. Do they have cancer or not? Then so much looking at the grade to guide it. Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely, um, definitely that um, selection bias. The needle's only going to strike some area of the, the tumor. And if it's a grade two area and a predominantly grade three lesion, um, I think that the grade just changes significantly. Uh, there is some literature to talk about the, the dramatic um, uh, you know, sarcomatoid features that are seen at biopsy. That is so fleetingly small. Um, but again, it happens on occasion. I'm much more in, inclined uh, to get biopsies because of clear cell versus non-clear cell. Uh, and I think, you know, if you've got a 75-year-old patient with an oncocytic neoplasm uh, and they're not telling you whether it's an oncocytoma or a chromophobe renal cell, that doesn't matter to me because the, the point is both of those are really indolent lesions and I feel comfortable observing either of them. Um, whereas if it's a clear cell, now at least we're talking about standard kidney cancer. And so I, I do uh, find myself using a lot more biopsy these days, um, particularly um, if there's a surgical 
uh, waiting list of you know three to five weeks, it, it seems pretty easy to put someone on a schedule and, and slip a biopsy uh, in that waiting gap. So I haven't found that it's really been slowing down uh, patient management. It actually gives the patient something they're doing while they're waiting uh, to get to the OR. Um, I see actually a question from Dr. George. Uh, Alice, why don't you tackle this one? What is the ideal management of oncocytic neoplasm or oncocytoma with a higher than expected growth rate? Is surveillance still appropriate? Uh, it depends on your patient. I think fully depends on uh, who the patient is, um, what their anxiety level is, what their composition is, and their general health. Uh, for an oncocytic neoplasm, uh, you know, I think surveillance is appropriate in certain patients, but those might, you know, if, it, if their growth rate is significant or if it's crossed a certain threshold, those would be in patients that are more likely what we would consider watchful waiting patients. Um, so, you know, I think it is appropriate in some, but it may not be enough for other patients. What one recent piece of data that Arvin, uh, that uh, we worked on with Dr. Derwish out at UCSD was actually an extremely surprising finding that oncocytomas that were on surveillance had more renal functional deterioration than patients in whom we operated on. I totally understand that it sounds really strange, um, but I'll tell you from the data that we're collecting, it's not the same for angiomyolipomas. Uh, and so there may be some uh, circulating factor uh, produced by oncocytomas. I've also had patients who feel they're down on energy, whose energy returns after you resect their oncocytoma. So we're, some of us, we may be out there on a limb, but we're starting to have a feeling like there still might be value to resecting uh, oncocytic uh, neoplasm. So m more to come on that. Uh, another question here, I know we're running a little lower on time. Um, one question, are most urologists doing the biopsy or sending to IR? Um, I think across the state, there's only a handful of urologists still biopsying um, their own. The majority of us are sending to IR, but more to come. Um, and then I see another question. Uh, any comments on radiologists recommending imaging and the type of imaging uh, for surveillance patients? Uh, radiologists, uh, the observation here, seem to recommend imaging too soon in our institution, and is this happening elsewhere? Uh, maybe Dr. Brutale or Dr. Rogers, you have a comment at, at your institution there maybe? or Yeah, I mean, they, they are making those comments on our radiology reports. I, re I think it's really down to the clinician to decide when they're going to actually repeat it themselves. I mean, the guidelines are somewhat disparate into when ter in terms of when you do it, so they're, they're not clear. They're their comments aren't based on any clear guidelines. So I think it really comes down to you and a sort of shared decision with your patient about when you want to trigger that next stat scan for them. Yeah. Where I've, where I've made a few calls to my radiology team is when I get a report that says where they're trying to be a pathologist and it says, oh, most likely papillary renal cell carcinoma, recommend ablation. Um, you know, I think that may be a little bit of an overstep, and I tell them, that, look, that's a discussion for the clinic, not for your pat, not for your radiology report. I think that's a really important point, and um, again, I, I think this is a space where some back and forth discussion is is indicated. Um, I think the AUA guidelines are pretty clear, and I, I think many of our feelings in the group are that one of the first steps 
for a patient with an indeterminate or suspicious renal mass is a discussion with a urologist. Uh, because we may very well feel it's indeterminate, but say, why don't we get a next imaging study in six months, uh, rather than uh, what we often see in our clinics of a CT, an MRI, and an ultrasound all obtained before the patient hits our clinic. So I, I think this is another QI opportunity uh, for the state uh, as we continue to work uh, with our colleagues. So a uh, final comment that I see here uh, was from uh, Dr. George, again, talking about the oncocytosis uh, and, and the benefit of partial nephrectomy. So again, uh, pretty interesting things that we can continue to work on as a collaborative. Um, working together is the way we're gonna learn so much because we have so many different perspectives uh, and experiences. And I think you know we're just at the start of this and really looking forward to working together. Uh, so I encourage as many as possible to, to join with us and participate on this panel. Uh, and at this point, I'll transition over to uh, Dr. Ghani and Dr. Miller, uh, who are gonna uh, lead out uh, as we uh, conclude. Thank you, Brian. This next section is a discussion on aspects related to music's growth and future directions. As you can see from today's presentations and discussions, we never lack for interesting ideas or the will to pursue them. And as a group, how do we continue to provide value to our patients, to our members and society at large? Where can music have the greatest impact? And as a team, we over the last few months have been thinking about this. And during this process, we defined our foundations of success, which are listed on this slide here. And they're centered on quality, collaboration, innovation, communication, and sustainability. These are core to who we are, and as we continue to evolve, these values will inform our decision-making and future direction. As we reflect, we also have to be mindful that there are threats and barriers for us achieving our success and mission. And some of these are noted on this slide, and they relate to uh, aspects with long-term funding, of being relevant to the majority of urologists, around saturation and engagement, about the reproducibility of our methods, and also around diversity. And over the years, we've been approached by many practices outside the state of Michigan who've approached us saying, can we join music? Can we be part of your collaborative learning model? And after discussing with our executive committee recently on this subject and with their approval, we feel the time is now right for us to consider allowing some select practices and expand membership to sites outside the state of Michigan. And we'd like to do this in a structured pilot manner. And we want to see if we have the ability to transition from a statewide impact to a nationwide impact. We're calling this project Outdoor Music. And by working with these outdoor practices, we're going to explore new methods of data collection and new methods of reporting that data with the goal to develop a sustainable model for collaborative quality improvement. This work we hope will benefit us here indoor in the state of Michigan, our members right here, by streamlining data collection and practice reports that engage and stimulate performance improvement and to develop lower cost models of quality improvement. And these new sites will bring a diversity and also bring new energy and new ideas. 
So our goal over the next 12 months is to engage with two urology practices outside Michigan committed to quality and who have a cultural fit to music values. And over these next 12 months, we're going to explore methods for better data collection and reporting to improve indoor music and then determine what is reproducible and universable as an exportable quality, quality improvement model. And by, by this pilot, we hope to develop criteria for practices who may want to join music in the future. If in five years time we've been able to successfully uh, integrate two, three or four practices into our collaborative and they've made us better as a group, I think this journey will hopefully have been worth it and be successful. And we look forward to seeing if this is possible. So this project aligns with our foundations, as I mentioned before, centered on quality, collaboration, innovation, communication and sustainability. I want to thank you for listening to this update and I welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact me and I welcome to have that discussion with you. I'd like to now hand over the next part of the meeting to my partner, David Miller, who will say some closing remarks and also make an important announcement. Uh, thank you for tuning in today and I look forward to meeting with you all sometime next year. Thank you, Kirshen. I appreciate the opportunity to share some closing remarks. First, music urologists who are currently earning the value-based reimbursement payments will also receive this in 2021, assuming that your practice continues to meet the participation metric targets. We heard about the ongoing opioid-free radical prostatectomy pathway pilot, and we look forward to hearing more about this initiative at subsequent meetings. We'd ask that you strongly consider utilizing music's stent omission appropriateness criteria when deciding whether or not to place a stent. Also, please consider participation on the Kidney Active Surveillance Panel. Our outdoor music pilot is slated for approximately 12 months with a plan to invite additional non-Michigan practices to participate following the pilot. It is also with mixed emotions that I'd like to discuss a transition. After nearly nine years as music's program director, I will be stepping down this month. However, I can assure you that music is in the best of hands in terms of its leadership. Kershid has been a tremendous co-program director for more than a year, and he will continue in this role, leading music forward in the years to come. I will still be involved in music, transitioning to the role of strategic advisor. In addition, I'm thrilled to announce that Dr. Alice Samergian will be assuming a leadership role in music, helping to advance many of our prostate-related initiatives. And finally, I can't emphasize enough that our extraordinary co coordinating center team remains absolutely committed to music and is here to support all of our participating practices. So I'd like to say thank you to all of music's participants for so many years for the opportunity to participate in this remarkable team. Thank you to our coordinating center. Thank you to my colleagues on our leadership team. And I look forward to continued progress in our efforts to make Michigan the best place in the world for urologic care. In this slide, I highlight our organizational chart because I want to emphasize that you'll see many familiar faces who will be continuing to lead our efforts forward, including all of the members of our extraordinary coordinating center. 
In terms of next step, we're committed to making continued significant progress in all of our quality improvement projects in the months to come. We look forward to connecting with many of you during our implementation and dissemination web-based visits. And our next music meeting will be scheduled in early 2021 with a specific date and format to be communicated very soon. Thank you again for your unyielding commitment to making Michigan number one in urologic care. Thank you.